I don't know how many of you that aren't new here have been to my office before. You're welcome to stop by anytime. I have a coffee cart, and one of my favorite things in the world is getting to brew coffee for other people and serve them. Uh, I, I mean it. You can just like text me, call me, email me, whatever. Tell me you're stopping by, and we can chat over some coffee together. But I should warn you that I do take it very seriously. Uh, and I, there's one other thing that I take too seriously, and it's, it's books. Um, you'll probably laugh at how much effort I put into my coffee, and then you'll laugh even harder whenever you see the number of books in my office and you realize that I've had to actually spend money on them. My office is absolutely covered in them, and it's because I love words. I love reading, I love writing, I love theology, fiction, church history, biography, books about books and writing. I'm willing to basically give any genre a shot. And so a couple years ago, I decided that I wanted to start collecting books here and there. And I don't have a big collection. Don't go down to my office right now and go look because I'm trying to preach to you and I would really rather you stay tight. Um, but if you were to go down there any other time, uh, the first book you would see is this. Uh, it's one of my favorite books in my collection. It's not really worth a ton, uh, but it is a first edition signed copy of a book called The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. This is my favorite novel of all time. Tim O'Brien's my favorite fiction writer. Uh, and it, it's really funny, actually. I had to read this book in high school, and I hated it, absolutely hated it, like most people do with assigned readings. Uh, but then I revisited it a couple years later, and it grew on me. The Things They Carried, like several of O'Brien's books, is a war novel. It's a collection of short stories told from different soldiers' points of view, and it opens with a list of things that soldiers would carry with them in Vietnam. And it talks about how much they weigh. O'Brien talks about the things that they carried were mostly determined by necessity. Some soldiers would have P-38 can openers and pocket knives and wristwatches, dog tags, chewing gum, Kool-Aid, lighters, sewing kits, all sorts of things. Uh, typically, most soldiers were carrying on them about 15 to 20 pounds of just random objects. O'Brien emphasizes that, that as these men tried to carry things, they also tried to get rid of things. Because as you might imagine, having to trek through Vietnam for, you know, Half a mile with 15 to 20 pounds on you wouldn't be too bad, uh, but whenever you're walking, you know, 40, 30, or 30, 40, 50 miles, uh, things begin to weigh you down. So what he's getting at is that the things they carried with them meant something to them. Anything they decided to keep on their person was, in their eyes, essential. Now, some men's necessities and essentials were, other than, were different than others. He lists a few. First Lieutenant Jimmy Cross carried letters from a girl named Martha, a junior at Mount Sebastian College in New Jersey. Another soldier named Kioa always took along a New Testament, along with a pair of moccasins to help him uh, move around in silence a little better. Rat Kylie carried two things with him everywhere he went, brandy and M&M's candy. And perhaps the funniest inclusion on the list, whenever you think about how pointless it really is, Dave Jensen carried a rabbit's foot everywhere. These things were significant to them. Sure, a lot of them were superstitious or sentimental, but they were necessary to keep their spirits up when in the face of war. Now, I know I'm talking quite a bit about O'Brien's book. I'm sorry. I really do love it. Because as you get through the book, you realize that the things that these soldiers carry are actually metaphors for the heaviest weight that they bear, the stories that they bring home. Some of them are truths, and some of them are half-truths, and some of them are absolute lies, but you realize that the premise behind the book is that 
these stories that followed them home from war weigh them down the same way all these guns, grenades, ammos, and random supplies did in Vietnam. And I think this is why the book had such critical success. It capitalizes on a huge part of our human experience. We aren't all soldiers, but we do all carry stories or traumas or memories with us. And they reshape the way we interpret the world around us. The way O'Brien says it, stories are for eternity. When memory is erased and when there is nothing to remember except the story. So when we don't have faith, when we have a tangible reminder, we don't have a tangible reminder of what God has done or what has happened, we will always have stories. And I want to suggest that the story we're looking at together this morning is in many ways a story that ought to become one of these stories we carry with us as we read the rest of Scripture and as we go about our lives. In a very real sense, I think that this story is a microcosm of the entire Bible, a scene that contains in itself the entirety of the gospel message and the entirety of the story of the Scriptures. Now, I know that sounds crazy to say that, but if we believe in a sovereign God, if we believe in a God who has been accounting for and planning our salvation since the beginning, then it means that he was actually working in and through the lives of these biblical characters. It means that in the same way that as we've seen in our Genesis series, that the story of Adam and Eve, or the story of Cain and Abel, or the story of Noah, weren't actually just about Adam and Eve, or Cain and Abel, or Noah. I think that the story today about Abram and Sarai having a close call in Egypt actually has a spiritual significance for us. One of the earliest Christian theologians, a bishop named Irenaeus of Lyon, used an example of a mosaic when talking about uncovering the spiritual meaning of Scripture. He suggests that whenever we know the true story of the Bible, we are able to put all of its scenes in their right places. He compares people who don't know the story of the Bible to uh, people who would take these stories uh, like Homer's Odyssey or Iliad, and he would rearrange all the scenes to where it tells a completely different story altogether, even if you took this original source material. Irenaeus says there are some who put Scripture's mosaic in the wrong order and end up with an image of a dog or a fox. But for those who put it in the right order, you can end up with a beautiful image of the King Jesus Christ, an image constructed by a skillful artist. And this is our task today, to consciously arrange the tiles of Scripture so that they show us the picture of the King, Jesus, who saves us through his life, death, and resurrection. In other words, because we know that this text in Genesis is fulfilled in the work of Christ, we can and should read them in light of their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You and I today know where this plot line is going, and because of that, we can put on our glasses, see how God was doing something in Abram and Sarai. So, as we walk through this story, after today, I want you to put the story in your pocket. Take it with you. Read the rest of the scriptures, remembering the way that God delivers from captivity and famine. Those are the two things we're going to focus on this morning, famine and captivity. I think that whenever we sum up all the Old Testament narratives, these themes are regularly used by God as plot devices as he writes human history. We're going to see that the story of Abram and Sarai is the story of God's people. It's the same story of God saving us from our sin and uniting us to himself. First, we're going to spend some time going over the story, looking at what famine and captivity meant in the life of Abram and in the context of Genesis. Then we're going to see that this story is actually foreshadowing the Exodus. 
As the father of Israel, this scene is an indication of what would come to his descendants in the not-so-distant future. And last, and perhaps most importantly, we will see that how the promised deliverance from exile is fulfilled once and for all in the good king, Jesus Christ, who poured himself out for our sakes so that we might know God and be delivered from our famine and captivity. So before we jump straight into the text, just please pray with me, and then we will walk through it together. Uh, God, you are good and gracious to us. Um, I confess uh, all week the temptation to uh, minimize you and your spirit in the midst of the busyness. For all the joy it has been to prepare this message this morning, uh, it is a message greater than I can do justice. And so I pray that you would help me speak with precision, uh, that I would represent you and your word and your character well. I pray that the Spirit would soften our hearts as we seek your message this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So let's begin with just looking at the story. Let's place it in its context in Genesis. As we've seen so far in Genesis 1 through 3, the world was made to glorify God and enjoy his presence. But then Adam and Eve disobeyed God's good command. And in response, God promises that one day the serpent that deceived them would be defeated by one of the woman's offspring. But that day would not be today, so God clothes them in animal skins and then casts them out of the garden. Then they fail to obtain the faithful offspring in Cain and Abel, so they give birth to another son in hopes of upholding this promised line. And the corruption of the earth continues to grow, so much so that God's displeasure uh, brings him to the flood. In his divine forbearance, he offers one family grace. He gives favor to Noah. And then last week, we heard about how Abram has received a call from Yahweh to go out from his country. In his call, he was given three promises, the continuation of the promised line, the promise of the land before him, and the promise of the blessing of the nations. So imagine the surprise to us and Abram, as we're reading Genesis, whenever our text begins this morning with a famine. It says there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Like a jailer brandishing bonds, Chrysostom says, the famine uproots Abram and his family immediately after the promise that Abram's offspring would be given the very land before them. As they are about to enter Egypt, they devise a plan. Abram knows that they must get out of Egypt alive somehow. So he says to Sarai, I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Abram suspected that because they were sojourners, they would be easily exploited by the Egyptians. He thought that the Egyptians would likely kill him so they could take Sarai as their own. Now, a, a few brief thoughts on this part, this first kind of scene that we see uh, before we move on. Uh, most scholars kind of guess that Abram's lie here, because I admit it kind of confused me the first time that I read it. I was like, why would he say that it's his sister? I don't really get it. Uh, most scholars suspect that this had something to do with ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, perhaps that Abram lying about Sarai being his sister would somehow avoid him having to go as far as actually handing his wife away to someone else. That for some reason, uh, with marriage culture and family culture, that it would prevent him to actually have to uh, watch his wife be taken into someone else's home. 
Second, as I was studying this text throughout the week, I came across plenty of sermons that said something to the effect of, Abram lied, which is a sin. However, God used Abram's sin for good, and so God can use our mistakes for his purposes too. And while I don't think that's wrong, God can and does use our failures for our good and his glory, I don't think it's the main point of this text. In the immediate context of Genesis, the story really serves as a transitional scene. Abram is being driven out of the land after the promise of land and blessing for his descendants. While it's tempting to make much of Abram's dishonesty because it feels kind of scandalous to us, there's surprisingly little attention paid to it in the text. The author of Genesis doesn't seem to take much issue with Abram's lie. And in fact, if we look at the whole story, there's only one instance of divine judgment, and it comes against the house of Pharaoh, probably in response to taking Sarai captive and most likely adultery. Notice that God doesn't punish Abram for deceiving Pharaoh. He punishes Pharaoh for taking Abram's wife. And so from this, I think we can conclude that what's actually going on as Abram is devising his plan here is an exercise in testing of his faith. Rather than trying to game the system or play God, Abram actually trusts God so deeply that he knows he must be taken to the very end of his rope and come out the other side of it alive. Abram trusts that God would be faithful in continuing the promised line only if he could pass through Egypt unscathed, surviving the famine and captivity. Now, I'm not trying to imply that you guys should all go lie all the time. Uh, it, it just doesn't really seem like it's the main focus of this story. So, keeping that in mind, Abram's prediction's right. The Egyptians find her beautiful, so beautiful, in fact, that when the princes see her, they absolutely must take her to Pharaoh. This was never part of Abram's plan. He had accounted for the Egyptians, but he hadn't accounted for Pharaoh himself. Sarai, for her beauty, is not merely taken by another. She's taken captive into the house of the very ruler of Egypt. In exchange for her, they do deal generously with Abram. They give him a host of possessions, sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, and camels. I don't know about you guys, I think that's a pretty fair trade for a wife myself. Maybe it's why I'm not married. It isn't clear the extent to which Sarai becomes involved with Pharaoh. But the fact that God sends plagues on his house seems to indicate that infidelity does indeed take place. It's likely that Sarai was taken to be part of a harem of brides or servants in the house of Pharaoh, and I lean towards the opinion that um, adultery does actually take place since God sends his judgment. I want to pause here for a moment and just say, place yourself in Abram's shoes. You're given a command to leave your land and go obey God in wandering, all under the pretense of being promised a land and being made a great nation, being a blessing to the peoples of the earth. And then as soon as God gives you this word, famine drives you out of the land you were promised and your wife is taken captive. The promised line is at risk of never continuing. You have nothing to show for yourself other than a few animals and a few servants, which is a pretty meager hand compared to being made a great nation. How discouraged Abram must have been in this moment. Having uprooted himself from all he knew, seeking to be faithful, he's met with nothing but uncertainty how easy it would have been to have given up on the promises of God and sought to survive on his own. But in his demonstration of faith, he persists. And in letting Abram be taken to the end of his tether, God shows his providence. He delivers them. 
The text says, Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. They're delivered, taking their plunder with them. And that's the end of the story. On to Genesis 13. Now we can take a few immediate applications away from this story. As we've mentioned, in the context of Genesis, it's yet another account of God preserving the promised seed. He's done this time and time again so far. He provides a way out. He allows the promised line to continue. Cain and Abel couldn't break it. Babel couldn't break it. Noah couldn't break it. And Pharaoh couldn't break it. The promise of a savior at this point in time remains unbroken, and God proves to be faithful. And with regard to the specific promises made to Abram, the story demonstrates that there's probably still a ways to go, that the time has not yet come for God's promises to be fulfilled in his life. Abram must continue his faithful journey. His story does not come to an end here, and spoiler alert, it probably won't for a while. This is all clear in the immediate context of the story. God preserves the promised line even through famine and captivity. This is the kind of story that the Israelites could carry with them for years to come. Beneath all this immediate context, however, I think something bigger is going on. And I don't think that it's reading too much into it. I think you will, as we will see, it's intrinsic to the biblical text. I think that the deliverance of Abram and Sarai actually foreshadows the Exodus, through which God would deliver Abram's descendants, as we see in the book of Exodus. God's people would pass through Egypt again, driven there once again by famine and taken into captivity. Genesis 15, which we will get to in a few weeks, uh, I presume. I haven't looked at the schedule. Uh, Beginning in verse 12 says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." Having recently been delivered from Egypt with his wife, Abram is warned that it would happen again, except next time it will happen to the entire nation. His people, too, would be sojourners, but his people, too, would be delivered. We begin to see this story take shape at the end of the book of Genesis, where the Israelites are driven to Egypt once again by a famine in Canaan. In Exodus 1, we see that the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. Like Sarai, the Israelites are forced into servitude. Like Sarai, the people of God are taken into captivity after famine drives them out of their security and into Egypt. Now, you probably know the rest of the story. Moses goes before Pharaoh, pleading for his people to be let go. Let my people go. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he will not hear Moses' pleas. And so God sends divine judgment against the Egyptians in response to Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Plagues of all sorts. The Nile turns to blood. Frogs, gnats, and flies plague the land. 
Livestock dies, boils strike the entire nation, hail rains down, locusts leaves the land barren, and darkness falls over Egypt. It all culminates with the death of the firstborn in every house that does not mark their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. Seeking mercy and hoping to placate the wrath of God, Pharaoh finally sends the Israelites away, and like Abram and Sarai, the Israelites leave with all they have plundered from the Egyptians. Look at the similarities between the two. In both stories, a famine drives God's people to Egypt. In both stories, the chosen people of God become sojourners, and when they do, they are taken captive and forced to be servants. In both stories, God sends divine judgment against those who are afflicting them, and in both stories, God's chosen people are brought out of their sojourn as a result of this judgment with great possessions. I don't think this is mere coincidence. It's God working in and through his people. The memory of Abram and Sarai had hardly been wiped from the Israelites' minds. Instead, it was a story that the Israelites could carry with them. The story of Abram and Sarai is a foreshadowing of this exodus. It's a shadow of what was to come when God would liberate his people from their enslavement and deliver them from the Egyptians. What's even more fascinating to me is that whenever you try to make sense of the various years and timelines and whatnot in uh, the book of Genesis and Exodus, uh, there's a really compelling reason, according to a lot of scholars, to believe that the 430 years Israel lived in Egypt actually begins counting from when Abram sojourns there in Genesis 12. What this gets at is the idea that Abram and Sarai's captivity and deliverance in Egypt is not just about them. It's actually initiating something bigger, something greater, much bigger than just the book of Genesis. The deliverance of Abram and Sarai inaugurates the freeing of God's chosen nation, Israel, from their oppression. It is the beginning of God drawing his people to himself so that they may understand how to live in the face of them. Look at how deliverance for the Israelites is directly tied to the forming of God's people. In chapters 13 to 18 of Exodus, we see God guiding them after their captivity. Yahweh finally comes face to face with Moses at Sinai, where God gives the law to his people. They are told to obey God as they go about their wandering, so they remain set apart and obedient. And so that they would always remember to have faith that the promise was yet to come, God gives them the law. The Israelites' liberation from Egypt, in one author's words, brings to realization God's original doxological purpose for humanity. It is tied directly to learning how to live as a human being in a fallen world in the face of seeking to be faithful to God. The deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt was teaching God's people how to worship him. And because Abram and Sarai's deliverance from Egypt is a divinely instated shadow of what was to come to the Israelites, I think we can rightly understand it to also be a picture of how God was teaching his people to worship, how he's forming his people, how he's setting them apart to live as human beings, bearing his holy name, how to live as sojourners, not just in Egypt, but in the world. When we situate the story of Abram and Sarai's within the biblical text, with the Exodus in view, we begin to see part of this mosaic. Everything recorded in this book we call Scripture has always served one purpose, God working in time and space to preserve the promise of a Savior for his people. He has been setting us apart ever since the beginning when he clothed Adam and Eve, and he maintains it through all the Old Testament covenants and promises. 
But I think that the most important thing to take away from this text, though it is a shadow of the Exodus, is the way it is a shadow of the gospel. The way that it tells the story of Christ as the good king who delivers us. Having seen the way that God was working in and through the life of Abram toward the future preservation of the Israelites, we can understand the spiritual meaning of this text. It's not just about Abram, and it's not just about the anticipation of the Exodus. It's the anticipation of Christ, the one who delivers us from our spiritual captivity, our spiritual famine. It is through him and according to him alone that we can secure the riches of our eternal communion with God. The Apostle Paul takes a similar view in Galatians 3. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to be jumping throughout the entire chapter. But he retells Abram's story in a similar manner, showing the way that the gospel actually lies at the heart of it. Beginning in verse 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, I know that that's kind of a confusing structure. Paul was probably a better writer than most of us. And so uh, what he's getting at here is that God gives a promise to Abram. He delivers his people and establishes a law 430 years later in making another covenant with Moses. The law does not break the promise given to Abram because as we see in Genesis 12 last week and as we will see in Genesis 15 What is given to Abram is given to him by a promise. The contingency does not lie on Abram to be obedient. God promises blessing. He expects obedience, but he promises blessing. So Paul continues the question that might be in your mind. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. God, knowing that his plan to redeem the world, enslaves his people under the law. This law could not give life. It could never save, could not and did not offer salvation. It didn't offer an eternal atonement. It didn't offer forgiveness for sins once and for all. It didn't offer eternal life. It was demanding. It was draining. It was a cruel master to be enslaved to. But God's people are placed under its rule so that he could further reveal the promise of faith in Christ at the fullness of time. Picking back up in Galatians 3, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
In Christ, we are made children of God instead of slaves to the law. In the fullness of time, God comes. He sends his son to be born as a human being, as one captive under the law to free humanity from law's captivity. He becomes a son of man so that we might become sons and daughters of God. If you hear nothing else this morning, if you think that this is all a bunch of nonsense, hear me say this clearly. The Son of God freely took on humanity so that through his captivity in the flesh, he could free us from our enslavement to the law and our own fleshly captivity to sinfulness. The Son of God actually and physically took on the human form so that by means of his hunger and thirst, he could redeem humanity's spiritual famine. He offers his body and blood so that we may not hunger or thirst any longer. Friends, this is the promise of the gospel. You are not a slave held captive by your sin, but a son, and if a son, an heir. If what Paul says is true, that if in Christ you are Abraham's offspring, And this means that the story of Abram and Sarai being delivered is not some arbitrary story about a random couple thousands of years ago in an Eastern culture. It means that the deliverance of Abram and Sarai in Egypt is part of your story. After all the trials, having passed through Egypt, having wandered in the wilderness, having faced exile, having overcome captivity and famine, Christ, who is the promised seed and the good king, has come to free you from your captivity not by upheaving or annulling the covenants and promises made to Abram and Moses and the Israelites, but instead fulfilling them perfectly so that you can be united with him in his perfection. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has actually freed you? Or are you still living as one in captivity? Do you still think that you can earn your way to God if only you were a little more obedient, a little holier, Perhaps if you performed a little better or measured your life according to different metrics? Or do you believe the true story of Scripture? Do you see the picture of the beautiful king? The one who has made a way for you to be set free? Hear me. I get it. This sermon was structured a little weird. But I think it's too tempting for us to read ourselves into the Old Testament stories to not seek what God was trying to tell us through these stories. I can't tell you how many sermons, as I mentioned earlier, that sounded something like, Abram was dishonest in Egypt, but God used his failure for his own glory and purpose. He can do the same for your failures. That's not the point of this passage. This passage is not about our work, but about Christ's. The way that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to take on flesh, containing the whole of the human experience in himself, so that human beings like me and you could be adopted as sons or daughters of God. The story of Abram and Sarai is fundamentally a picture of the way God has delivered us once and for all from our spiritual famine and captivity. In the same way God delivered Abram and Sarai, and the same way he delivered the Israelites from Egypt years later, God has provided us a way, the blood of Christ. The story is not ultimately about Abram's disobedience or even about your disobedience. It's a story about the son's good obedience in securing salvation on our behalf. It's a story that reminds us that although God was faithful in holding his promises and delivering his people in times of trouble, he has provided us today a better deliverance, a truer deliverance. His son took on the form of humanity and was born of a virgin. 
He subjected himself so that by his subjection we may be freed. He died a death we deserved and resurrected from the grave, defeating death according to his own death, bringing life through his resurrection. It is our gift that we can participate in. You, too, can be delivered from famine and captivity. If you are in Christ this morning, this is your story. God offers something better than just using your sins for his glory or your good. God offers you a way out of our enslavement to sin. Dwell in this. Don't outgrow this. Don't move past this. You were once famished. You were once held captive. But now you can live in right standing before God, obedient and filled with the riches of Christ. If you are not in Christ this morning, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian or you aren't certain if you have a relationship with Jesus, the good king, find me after the service. Better yet, find one of our elders. Find Pastor Ryan, Pastor Corey, any of the other elders. We would love to talk to you about the freedom that Christ brings. The promise was given to Abram by faith and it is by faith that we are given the free gift of grace today. It is by faith that we are partakers of this lovely truth as we read in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then heir through God. The promise of being a co-heir with Christ is given to us by faith, and it can be yours today in Christ Jesus, the good king who delivers us from famine and captivity. God shows no partiality, no matter how many mistakes you think you've made, no matter how much you think you've failed, or whatever addictions or strugglings you are facing. God is bigger than them, and he is faithful in delivering you from them. Trust in him. I'm going to pray, and then Brandy and Joy will come up, and we will close in song this morning.